We started off at the beginning with the idea of Christ-centered history, the idea of predestination, if you remember. Then Christ-centered recreation, the idea of we went from death to life, from exclusion to being in the one family of God. And then the Christ-centered calling to build up the body of Christ. And then just now the Christ-centered family to live that out in our everyday life. And so we come to this, our last talk, the Christ-centered warfare. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that we might be those who will engage in this warfare, help us to know our enemy, help us to stand firm, help us to be those who trust in you and the armour that you provide for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A recent poll in the USA said that still 54% of adult Americans believe that humans can be controlled by spiritual forces of demons. I'm sure amongst the Asians the number is higher. Even in westernized, sophisticated Singapore, one of the times I was here, I was sitting there outside at night just eating in one of those, you know, hawker stores, and these people were taking pictures with infrared cameras up in the trees somewhere. And I said, what are they doing? And my Singaporean friend said, ah, they are trying to work out whether there's actually ghosts and things like that, and somehow infrared cameras can, you know, find them. Okay. We Asians have a bondage and fear of the supernatural. The paranormal, the things that go bump in the night. Uh, we pick little straws to find out what's the best wedding date so our marriage will go well. We uh, have people in exams in Australia who in the exam room reorientate their, 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 their table, right, so that the feng shui is just right. People at funerals want to usher the dead onwards to the next life. There are little shrines at accident sites. Christians, Asian Christians, we also recognize the demon side of life. Uh, we think of demon possession. Uh, we think of people having particular demons inside us, of lust or greed or anger. We recognize the spirit world. The book of Ephesians here also recognizes the spirit world. In chapter 6 here to the end, there's a recognition of the devil. In verse 11 there, the devil is seen as a being, not just some Star Wars dark side of the force, but a personal being. Verse 12 is not a, a human, that's not where our enemy is. Our enemies are, are not the governments that are anti-Christian. Our enemy is not ISIS but a reality, a reality in the heavenly places, a reality in that heavenly reality, that spiritual reality, where there are the forces of Satan and the demons and fallen angels, if you like, those who are in rebellion against God. They were created good, but somewhere in Genesis chapter 2 to 3 or chapter 3, they have rejected God. They have mounted an assault on mankind. And the assault was this. 
They sought to kill us by lies. You eat that fruit, you'll surely not die. Your eyes will be open. Lots of half-truths. For indeed, their eyes were open. But what did they see? They saw that they were naked. Indeed, they did not die. They didn't suddenly eat the apple, drop dead. That's another story, isn't it? Snow White or something like that. And it wasn't an apple. It was the knowledge of good and evil. There was the lie that we can know, we can decide for ourselves what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. We can take the place of God and get away with it. But it was a lie and death did come. Death not only physical but death in terms of being thrown out of the garden of God, thrown out of life itself. You see in verse 11 of chapter 6 here that the devil has schemes. He's crafty. All the lies he gave were, you know, there's a bit of truth in them. He's very sneaky. He's after all, as we saw in the first talk, the father of lies. He was a murderer from the beginning. And we live now, in verse 13, in the days of evil. In this time between Jesus' first and second coming, we live in a time of, of alertness, a time where there's evil, a time where we've got to be on, on high alert, like they are in Paris, like they are in Brussels and all over the world. We've got to be on the alert. In verse 16, they are the flaming darts of the devil, of the evil one. And so we need to actually recognize there is this spirit world, it is there, it is true, and it is a clear and present danger. But in what form does this evil, this devil, take? What is the attack? Well, how does he influence us? Remember chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, it is not so much in the occult or anything like that, but rather the prince of the power of the air he encourages us to follow the course of this world. He encourages us, chapter 2 and verse 3, to live in the passions of our flesh, to carry out the desire of our body and of our mind to do what we want to do. That makes Satan very, very happy. We just live for ourselves. That is how Satan has mastered our world. But look at chapter 4, verse 27, the verse we have not touched on so far. 4, verse 27, where we see the work of Satan, the influence, if you like, of Satan, even on possibly Christians. Chapter 4 and verse 27. Pick it up from verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 27. And give no opportunity to the devil, or do not give the devil a foothold. That is, don't let him so sneak into your life. Don't so open the door to him and he can stick a little his foot in the door and, and, and make a little camp in your heart. We cannot, as Christians, I don't think, be possessed by Satan, by demons, but... Satan can have a little foothold in our life. 
uh, can take one part of our life which we, we, we not only struggle with sin, we begin not to bother to struggle with sin. And he just makes a little camp and he's beginning to build his influence in our life. We've got to let the Bible define what Satan's work is in our life. It is there, the Bible helps us to understand it. In the book of Ephesians, that is how Satan's work is seen. Not in the sort of supernatural demon possession, satanic attack, all that kind of stuff. But in his influence on people by his lies as he tempts us by his lies. As Paul ends off and as we end off, in chapter 6, verse 10 onwards, he concludes this whole letter with this imagery of the battle. We are to, point two, take our stand. Take our stand. First of all, notice, it is our responsibility. We are at war. This is not a drill. Verse 11, verse 13, we are to stand firm. Three times he says it. Stand firm. When my uh, twin girls were about three years old, we were uh, working out whether they should uh, go into this sort of um, uh, preschool, uh, sort of uh, two or three mornings a week, I think it was, uh, to go to preschool. We we, uh, took them there, and there was this cubby house, little house, and um, they said, well, why don't we try out this house? So my two little girls were about to go in, but then there was a group of uh, four or five-year-old boys in there, and they looked out the little window of the house and they said, this is just for boys, no girls allowed. Well, my uh, Laura, and I think it was my Steffi, pushed Laura in front of her and said, let's go, let's go. And so they went in. And my wife and I stood back and said, let's see what's going to happen. And they went in, no noise, and then about three minutes later, all these boys filed out. (laughs) Later on, we asked them, so what happened in there? What did you do? And my little Steffi said, nothing. We just stood firm. (laughs) Just stand your ground. That is the idea. Uh, in a war in the olden days, right? You 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 see uh, the movies, you know. They, they you get all the army. You you get your battle line, right? You got to make sure there's no chink in the battle line. You stand firm at your posts. We are to stand. It's not saying we're going to make any kind of attack. We just stand firm. That is our responsibility. Verse thirteen, having done everything to stand. Verse fourteen, stand firm. It's not the idea of let go and just let God do stuff. No. We are to be those, verse 10, who are strong in the Lord. That's a great little phrase from the Old Testament. Remember Joshua in the Old Testament? He was told as he was about to conquer the promised land, be strong and courageous. It is 100% our responsibility. But notice in verse 10, we are not to be strong in our own strength, but to be strong in the Lord. Not in Yahweh now, but in the Lord Jesus, we are to be strong. The Roman soldier is then painted for us. I'm sure you've done lots of Sunday school kind of things where you, you know, get all dressed up in this uh, soldier gear. You men, especially in NS, you know about soldiers, you know about guns, you know about arm, uh, armory, 
Um, the ladies may not know, but you know from the romantic movie uh, Iron Man what it's about in terms of armour. As you read through the armour, one thing you recognise, I hope, is there's nothing new here. Nothing new. We've covered all this armour before in the rest of the book of Ephesians. Lots of these pieces of armour take their root from Old Testament um, imagery, which we don't have time to go into, but it takes phrases, ideas that he's already covered in chapters 1 to 5. That's very important to know. That is chapter 6, verse 10 onwards. It's not a separate section of Ephesians now talking about spiritual warfare. No, no, this is exactly just saying the same stuff he's already said before, except that he's focusing on the idea that we are in a spiritual warfare. It's the conclusion of what he's been saying all along. And you say, you pick up the different pieces of the armour, there's the belt of truth. Well, truth has been mentioned in chapter 1, verse 13. Very quickly, chapter 1 and verse 13 we are those who believed in the word of truth that was preached to us. Or remember chapter 4 and verse 15, 4 verse 15, speaking the truth in love. It's the truth of the gospel. Remember Satan comes with his lies. The way you counter his lies is, of course, with truth. Uh, there is righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness in Ephesians 6 as part of the armour in verse 14. Again, righteousness has been mentioned already. Chapter 4.24, go back to 4.24. We're to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Could be about our righteousness being right with God now because of Jesus' death or our right living now as a consequence of being forgiven by Jesus. Or the, the uh, shoes of the gospel of peace that we wear as part of our boots. Chapter 6, verse 15. Oh. The whole of chapter 2, verse 13, it's all about peace, isn't it? Remember, peace with God, peace between Jew and Gentile, that, that, that good relationship that now is there. Faith, you know, the shield of faith. Chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, we've been saved by grace through faith, our trust, our dependence on Jesus' death. The helmet of salvation, well, we've been saved. Salvation's all the way through. In the end, the one piece of attacking armory, if you like, is the sword, which is the word of God. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, the word of God has been mentioned again and again. See, there's nothing new in chapter 6. It's just reminding us of the rest of chapter 1 to 5, but put in the angle, hey, you better watch out. We are in war situation. We've got to be alert. And so what do we do as we understand and know our enemy? We know it's our responsibility. We got God's armour. And so what do we need to do? We need to put it on. How do you put on an armour? Well, a physical one, you just, you know, put it on. But how do you put on this, this armour of God that is truth, that is righteousness, that is the gospel of peace, that is faith and salvation, the word of God? How do you actually put that on? Verse 11, verse 13, cause us to put it on, but how do we do it? As I glance and glean through the rest of Ephesians, the way you put it on, the way we put it on, 
It's got to do with how we respond to the word of God. We've got to know it. As people say, read, mark, and learn the scriptures. After I became a Christian, the only thing I remember next when I was about 16 or 17 years old was a friend of mine said to me, Joshua, you've got to get stuck in the scriptures. Read it, understand it, get stuck. That, that is the, one of the best things someone has ever said to me. And I still remember in the morning I used to get up and read the Bible and make a little notes and if I don't understand something, I write a question, I read it again and try to answer my own question. I still got a few exercise books of those notes. It's somewhere in the garage and one day when I die, my children will get it out and throw it out. And but, but it's getting stuck into the Bible. That is important, to know God's word. But not only knowing it, trusting it, isn't it? That is the, the shield of faith, trusting it. Trusting that it's true. And chapter 4, verse 15, speak the truth in love. We've got to speak it. We've got to speak it to one another. Speak it to those who are not yet Christian. We've got to tell the gospel. It's interesting. The more you tell the gospel, uh, the more you understand it, uh, the more you believe it yourself. It's true. It's only, it's only when you teach something that you really know something. And then lastly, you've got to live it out. You've got to live this gospel. Practice the gospel. That is how you put on the armor of God. Trust it as the authority. Individually we need to do that. As a church we need to do that. Don't move from the word of God, from the gospel message. This week as we talked about church and things like that, uh, we could have just you know, had five talks on different ways you can care for one another in church. But I was tempted, but I didn't do that because it's far better to follow the flow of a book. For when we follow the flow of the book, like in Ephesians, which is all about church, you start talking about predestination, you start talking about Jesus' death. You have to get the gospel again and again, and that gives us the encouragement, the motivation to then know what we should do about church and how we should live. We must not move to legalism. We must not move to just, you know, here are the things that we do. Of course we know about the gospel, you know, we learned that when we became a Christian 10 years ago. Now tell me what to do. No, no, we've got to keep listening to the gospel again and again. That is how you put on the armour of God again and again, for ourselves individually and as a church, and generationally. Often in Christian uh, churches and movements, the first generation has to fight for it, has to defend against false teaching. The second generation often assumes the gospel. They don't disbelieve it, they just assume it but never really talk about it. And if that happens, then the third generation basically loses the gospel. Right? You've got to actually keep preaching the gospel all the way through, again and again. That is the response of putting on the armour of God. The lie of the devil will say to us, the more stuff you have, the happier you'll be. We've got to counter that, generation after generation. I started countering that with my son when he was about three, four years old. You know, he was someone who always you know, wanted more toys and McDonald's and things like that. 
And so we showed him the the uh, the videotape of VeggieTales. I don't know if you've seen VeggieTales. I like the one with Madame Blueberry. You know, Madame Blueberry was very blue, very sad because she didn't have much. And her neighbour, we're always comparing ourselves to someone else, her neighbour started getting lots of new stuff. And uh, this big truck from uh, Shopping Mart, I think it's an American thing, Shopping Mart comes along and, and puts all these new big TV, new sofas, new washing machines, all this onto the neighbour's tree. No, no, not the neighbor's tree. Madam Blueberry's tree, isn't it? Right? She wanted all those stuff, and so she had more and more of the stuff on her tree. And then so much stuff that the tree started to lean and fell over to the neighbor's yard in the, in the water, and all went splat. So we stopped the video. Now, little Jordan, Jordan, now what did you learn from that video? He looked up and said, I learned that you should build your house on the ground. <laughs> You wonder, you think we are teaching the kids all these great things, right? But <laughs> Friends, we need to learn from the day we are small that things do not make us happy. That more and more stuff is going to, in the end, just become charcoal. That's all it is. In fact, happiness itself is not the aim of life. I mean, even non-Christians sometimes can tell us, you know, stuff doesn't make you happy. But friends, relationships, uh, trying to succeed in something, that doesn't necessarily make us happy. In fact, what makes us think the aim of life is, is happiness? That's very selfish in the end. It's about our happiness, isn't it? The Gospel says Jesus is the centre of everything. Life is about making him happy, that he is pleased, to please the Lord in chapter 5, not about us being happy. We've got to counter the lies of the devil. Well, there is the armour of God. Verse 18 then talks about praying in the Spirit. It's not so much an armour of God, but more the how we and, and uh, how we actually put on the armour. Yes, we trust the gospel, we listen, believe, live it out, but we do it as we pray to God, verse 18. We are to pray at all times in the spirit. It's not talking about praying in tongues or anything like that. Before all Christians here are called upon to pray in the spirit. Well, what does it mean in the spirit? Come back to chapter 2 and verse 18. Chapter 2 and verse 18, very important verse about the Spirit and us and God and Jesus. 2 verse 18, For through him, through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have our access in one Spirit to the Father. There is the Trinity. Jesus, Spirit and Father. The one Spirit we have is the Spirit who enables us, in Romans 8 and Galatians chapter 4, the Spirit enables us to call God our Father, to call him Abba Father, Dad, Papa Father, that, that close personal name. And how does the Spirit enable us to call God our Father, the God of all the world, the Creator, the Judge? How do we sinful people come before the Judge and say, G'day, Dad? It's because the Spirit points us to Jesus and his death on the cross, the forgiveness that is in Jesus. That's why we as sinners can come and pray at all. 
And so it's a great privilege to be able to pray, to come to God as our dad. And so we are to pray. And not only to pray, but we are to be ambassadors. For Paul asked for prayer, come back to chapter 6 and verse 19, asked for prayer for himself. He is in jail and is in jail for the gospel. He's tempted, even Paul is tempted to maybe shut up at the gospel. And so he asks for prayer, verse 19. Pray also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought. To speak, he wants boldness. It's actually, I think, too late to pray for Paul. Okay, about 2,000. We can pray for missionaries. That's legitimate. We can pray for those who preach the gospel for boldness. We need to do that, especially for those who are in difficult places. Heard of a video recently that uh, someone showed in our church It was a video of a Syrian Christian mother just a few months ago of her speaking to her young kids. They're less than 10 years old. And her saying to her young boys, whatever you do, don't give up on Christ. He said to the boys, we are not going to run away from Syria like everybody else. We are going to actually stay in Syria because the Syrians need the gospel. And he said to the boys, no matter what they do to you, do not give up on Jesus. No matter what they do to us in front of you, do not give up on Jesus. Now that's pretty bold, isn't it? There are Christians around in our world today who are suffering because of the gospel. The suffering we go through, it's its almost nothing, isn't it? Heard of a missionary uh, in Australia and he got up and he said, um, uh, he's been, he's been um, thrown in prison, he's from Nigeria, and uh, he told a story where once he was in England and he was giving a, a missionary conference and the uh, organizer of the missionary conference said to him, look, uh, you know, there's some people in the Christian crowd here, you know, in this thousand or so people, you know, who, who may not agree with you on, on X or Y or Z. So, you know, just, just be careful how, how you say those things. And the missionary said, you want me to, to be careful and, and, and tone down what I'm going to say? Come on. I've been to prison. They've you now whipped me. They've done all kinds of things to me. What are these guys going to do to me? Not give me lunch? Right? When you've actually suffered for the gospel, you are more emboldened to keep preaching the gospel. Friends, we have brothers and sisters who are suffering for the gospel. Let's keep holding on and preaching and telling our friends and family the truth. We are... In some sense, a little A ambassador, just as Paul was the big A ambassador. You know what an ambassador does? An ambassador goes, represents their country in different foreign lands. Uh, Once um, I was uh, with my daughter and her boyfriend, and her boyfriend was a little bit crazy that he wanted to be in Canberra, and that day in Canberra he wanted to go and visit all the embassies he can in Canberra, in the capital. 
Why? Because he wanted to say to his friends on Facebook that today I went to 15 different countries. And so we drove around, you know, the American embassy and then the Jewish one and then the Singapore one and the Malaysia one and just got out, took a picture in front of the gate and come back in the car, took a picture. Friends, we are ambassadors for God's kingdom. We are the outposts of God's kingdom in the world. In Singapore, in your family, in your workplace, in your school, that you are the reason that could be the channel by which other people will know Jesus. As an ambassador, you are the ambassador for Jesus. Live like him. You are the ambassador to give his message. Do not dilute the message. There is the armor we are to put on as we preach God's gospel. We can do it. Chapter 6, verse 11 and chapter 6, verse 13 keeps on saying we can, as we take on the armor, stand firm. We are able to stand firm. Friends, sometimes we fail. And when we fail, we've got to hold on to the gospel, say sorry to God, say sorry to those we've heard if we need to say that. Trust in the death of Jesus. Turn to God and say, I want to repent. I want to live differently. That's normal Christian life. And as we stand firm in the gospel, we can live out the normal Christian life of struggle, sometimes failing, but also sometimes winning, being able to stand firm. Friends, the arm of God, the gospel, for that's what it is, is all that we need to stand firm. We have the victory in God's power of the gospel. And we've got to remember the decisive battle that Jesus already has won. Chapter 1, verse 10, he's the one who's going to be the one in power, who rules over everything. Chapter 3, verse 10, remember, he's the one who's got the church as, as his trophy. We are the great showcase that we have beaten Satan and the authorities in the heavenly places. And chapter 4, verse 10, very easy, isn't it? 1, 10, 3, 10, 4, 10. We see that Jesus is the great victor who comes in and marches in. Having won the battle, he now gives the gifts to men. He now gives all these gifts of the word of God and people who teach the word of God to his church. We have God's victory. Friends, we don't have to be afraid of the paranormal. Christians can't be demon-possessed. Uh, there's no such thing as you know, specific little demons in us, you know, of lust or something that we have to sort of cast out of ourselves or get someone else to do the casting out for us. 1 Peter chapter 4, James chapter 4 says, Yes, the, the devil prowls around like a lion, but resist the devil and he will flee. We do not have to be scared of the devil and his schemes. One of the problems with the modern Christian trend of saying you've got a little demon here, a little demon there, let me come and cast it out for you, is that it dissociates us from our sin a little bit. You know, my sin I'm struggling with, oh, it's not really me, it's that little demon inside me. 
And so it actually devoids ourselves of responsibility. No, no. We are those who do struggle sin. We struggle as we listen to the lies of the world. But we can overcome as we put on the armour of God, as we hold on to the gospel in the word of God, day after day, in the normal flow and ebb of church life and family life. Friends, the real attack of Satan, I think for us, is not so much in persecution. Right, Many people in our world, maybe for us a little bit, there's a bit of persecution. There is that second soil where you know the sun beats down and the plant can wither. There's a bit of that. But that's not really our problem. Our problem is with the third soil, isn't it? The thorns that come and choke out the word of God. No one remember what it was? The thorn was the worries and cares of life and the deceitfulness of riches. That's where our struggle is. Our problem is that we are tempted to walk down Orchard Road and worship at the temple of Isatan, uh, I, Satan. <laughs> there is the greed. But as we hear the gospel message, God can do that great miracle, that spiritual miracle of enabling us to stand firm. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that we might be those who trust in your armour, that we might take on the belt of truth, that we might take on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We thank you for the reminder of that armour throughout Ephesians and we pray that we might put it on by trusting it, knowing it, living it out, teaching it. And we ask, Father, that we might do that ourselves and as a church so that we might, as BTPC, be your great ambassadors, your outposts of your kingdom in Singapore. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.